Hey friends, this is Chaplain Gary Rayburn, Lonesome Road Ministries, Church on the Road, and we're excited. I got my partner, Daryl Spicer, with me, and he's excited too. I'm excited because we're going to bring trailer trucking to the radio. We're a couple old trailer truckers, and our ministry is to the driver. But you know, that's the way it started, but then all of a sudden we figured it out. It's not a truck driving ministry, it's a whosoever ministry. So we're going to hopefully enlighten you a little bit about the trucking industry, but more importantly, we want to bring Jesus to the drivers out there on the road and to you. So come right along with us in the cab for Church on the Road. project and we're going to be playing a lot more of their music on today's program but we got an awesome testimony today daryl we do we do we really appreciate this driver letting us get up in the cab of the truck right along with him while we listen to this radio program and you know gary we've been in a lot of trucks this is the first day cab i've ever sit in with you (laughs) it's a little crowded it's a little crowded and i'm so glad he has an automatic me sitting in the middle like this (laughs) but gary today even though it's crowded in here, I think we're going to have some shouting room. Amen. We, this, we will. this is going to be a great program. You know, we all go through stuff in life, and it, most of it started early. As teenagers, uh, we just got rebellious. And we're going to hear a story today from a lady that been there, done that. She's done it all. But, man, the good Lord pulled her out of that pit, just like he did me. And me. Yeah. Amen. And if you're listening to this radio program, you need to listen to this today because you might have some children in the same situation that our sister Iris Blue was in. Yeah, and this testimony of Iris Blue has went all across the country, even around the world. We've sent copies of this all over the United States. And hey, we'd love to send you a copy. If you'd like to get a copy of this after you listen to it, give us a call. That's right. So here she is, Sister Iris Blue. 
I was raised in a family that was in church. My family had four kids. We had two good ones and two bad ones. And the good ones were the kind that were in the honor students, you know, and they put on the bumper stickers. And all, you know how parents are excited, so they put a little bumper sticker that their kid's an honor student. Well, they never made a bumper sticker for my kind. I saw one that was kind of close the other day. It said, my kid can whoop your honor student. And that's about <laughs> as close to a bumper sticker as I ever got. But I was always in trouble. And, but in our family, the two good kids were good, and, and we were in church. We went to all the things. You know, I won a blue ribbon one year for being the fastest on the draw. When I was 10 years old at Vacation Bible School, like we'd done every year, I was there, and you know how you practice all your little plays and memorize your verses. And, and the real reason they have Vacation Bible School is not the kids, really, I found out. It's to try to figure out how to hook Daddy, because Daddy will come see their kid do a little skit. And uh, so it was just uh, one of those kind of deals. We'd ate our cookies and done all the things you're supposed to do. And then the preacher, instead of preaching on the Friday night like they would do back then, was he invited an evangelist in, one of those flame, you know, them kind of go, hang on, and hit the pulpit real loud and scare everybody, you know. And, and he preached on hell for about 45 minutes with the heat up. And the 10-year-olds had to sit right here in the front because we'd just done our little play and pulled our skirt up, picked our nose, you know, waved at the mom and dad. And so I had been up there, and so we were right here, and he spit. Now, he didn't spit like I do. He sprayed. <laughs> You're glad. Uh, his was more like a, a spray, and the way the lights were, it almost looked like fire, and he preached on hell. And it's kids were like, oh, and he'd talk about the worms not dying, and every time he'd say hell, he would hit that pulpit, and then he'd say, and he had jowls, and I mean, he really had our attention. Then he started asking a real dumb question. He said, now, how many of you want to go to hell? I thought, good night. I wanted to peek so bad. You know, they tell you, don't look, but I found out everybody does, but I didn't know back then, so I didn't look, and I thought, oh, I wonder if anybody's stupid enough after hearing all this description, is there anybody going to say, um, let me give you my answer Friday. I'd like to think about this a while. I knew that there couldn't be anybody in that building after hearing what he just described that would say, I think I want to go there. So when he asked that question, I was with everybody else. I didn't want to go. And you know, I haven't changed my mind in all those years, but I hated it that it took me a long, long route to discover not wanting to go to hell is not salvation. I didn't meet Jesus at that time. I just didn't want to go to hell. And so what happened was, then he started snapping his finger and said, nah, if you don't want to go to hell, you know how they do. And he said, come on down, honey, I ran. And all the rest of them did. And we figured it must have been time for a newsletter because the wife was down the front going, one, two, three, you know, counting the number of people that had made a decision. And on paper, it looked good that there were a lot of people that got saved. But I didn't really meet Jesus that day. I didn't want to go to hell. And I was crying. And for some reason, if you cry in church, your mother thinks you're saved. Now, you can cry when your dog gets run over and your mother don't think you're saved. But if you cry in church, you're really sincere. And so I was considered a Christian no matter what happened in my life. And I had some major problems as even a young kid. Now, I came from, like I said, a family. I don't have the traditional excuses. I didn't come from a broken home. I didn't come from an abusive home. I didn't come from the real rich neighborhood or the real poor neighborhood. I was really right where most people say it's the best place to be. But I still messed up. And then I said, our family, we had two good kids and then two that messed up. And things started happening in my life real young. But I found out without the power of Jesus, even as a young person, it doesn't matter if you're 8 or 80. When the King of Kings comes in and invades a life and takes over, there's a change, and it doesn't matter who it is. I didn't have a change. I just didn't want to go to hell. That's all that I knew was, honey, I don't want to go. And so I went down, and two weeks later was baptized and just considered a Christian. But when I started facing some real issues in my life, I didn't know how to handle them. And I'm convinced every young person has to deal with these issues. And if they don't learn how to deal with them, they're going to have a mess. And the first one was, like in me, if y'all haven't noticed, I'm big. I was six foot three at 12. I was the biggest kid in our school. The teachers would raise their hand and ask me for permission to go to the bathroom. So I had a terrible complex. I didn't understand why it had to happen. I remember the day I ran home because a little boy had asked me to carry him piggyback. And I thought, piggyback? Not exactly what I had in mind. You see, I started liking boys in the incubator. I loved them. I thought there is a God and he made boys. I liked them. You know, I'd try to flirt with them and look sexy and I'd lean up against the locker and he'd cave in. And, but my dream was that I wanted some of the little boy to carry my books or to treat me like I was valuable or open the door. I just wanted somebody to think I was special. And so the little boy I had a crush on, that's what he was afraid of, that I was going to crush him. he come up to me and he says, listen, I need to ask you something. And he was real nervous, so I thought he was going to ask me to go steady or something, but he asked me if I'd carry him piggyback. 
my little computer started saying, look, you're big and ugly. And if you don't do something, you're not going to get his attention because you see who gets to hold hands in school. It's some little bitty cute girls. You're never going to get it. And so even though deep in my heart I wanted to say, no, my dream is that you'll carry my books. I don't want to carry you on my shoulders. And it doesn't sound real immoral or real perverted, but I'm convinced after I met Jesus through prayer that this is where my life really started messing up, is that I compromised what my dreams were, even in elementary school, that I wanted desperately just to be treated like a lady, but I didn't think I qualified. So I told him to get on. And I'd already learned, even in church, don't ever let anybody know what's really going on inside. You just put on a smile and act like everything's okay. And I was hurting inside. I wanted to cry, but I didn't want nobody to see me cry. So I didn't let nobody know. But I ran home to my mother and I said, why am I so big? Is there a pill I can take or an operation or something? I am a freak. My mother got reached deep as she could into her heart and gave me the best answer she could come up with. Honey, God made you that way. You're kidding. And you want me to worship him? No wonder everybody looks so sad in church. You know, I really hated church. I mean, you should see some of y'all. Uh, you look mad, you know, and I thought, I don't want to be in church. Everybody looked like somebody shot their dog on the way to church, you know. I thought, I don't want to be there. I mean, you know, what's the deal? They're talking about the king of kings and all this stuff, and everybody looks so angry, so sad, so pitiful. They fight for the back row instead of the front row. You know, we went to concerts. Everywhere we went, people would try to go to the front row. If you're going to the movie, kids would push and shove and try to get to the good seats but in church to hear the greatest message in the whole universe they were fighting for the back row so I wasn't ever very impressed with church and so my mother then told me that God made me big I thought that's what's wrong with him he's pulled a dirty trick on every person in church and that's why they look so mad like I dare you just try to make me smile and so I didn't want to be saved I thought man no wonder I just didn't like it and I almost made a deliberate decision that I didn't like God I didn't want nothing to do with him even like a just 10 or 11 years old young kid because my heart was just so broken over what I was. The other thing that started my life that, again, I think every young person has to deal with was rebellion. It started little. I didn't, at 8 and 9 years old, decide that one day I wanted to grow up and be a mess. I had normal dreams and ambitions like every little kid. We have done mission work around the world, and we've been in prisons around the world, and I have never met a prisoner that said, Praise God. <laughs> I'm doing life. I'm so excited. You know, you don't meet losers that say, glory to God. I'm a loot. You know, you just don't. I've never met an alcoholic. Can't control their bladder. Say, praise God, I'm a drunk. You don't meet somebody that's a junkie that says, I don't have no friends. Nobody trusts me. That says, you know, all my life I've worked and worked. And finally, I'm a loser. I'm a junkie. You don't meet people like that. I didn't start out with ambitions to be a mess, but I ended up a mess coming from a good home. One of the biggest things all over the place we see is a lot of people from good families have got some messes and they're hurting inside and they don't want nobody to know because we're afraid that if they find out somebody in our family is bad they'll blame it all on us and so we just keep it inside and it turns into that big cycle of you go to church and then when your real feelings are there you sit down and your heart looks like it's about to fall out of your chest you're so miserable and when they're trying to say Jesus is the answer you're going oh you just don't know the mess I got and then some lost person across the aisle looks over and says, if that's victory, I don't want it. And that's what happened in my life, was I just ran looking for freedom and excitement and thrills. But my rebellion started little. You know how it started? You ever heard your kids do this? You know, you say, clean your room. And they walk out, they do just what you told them. Now, really what they wanted to do is they wanted to turn around and go, look, baby. One day I'm going to be my own boss, and I might even slap you. But I realize that if I talk to you like that now, I'm in big trouble. So I'm going to abbreviate it because you're so dumb. You know, you're not even going to get it anyway. So I'll just fool you and walk out of the room. And I got away with it. And then I found out that one thing always leads to more. Sin never stops. And so when I got involved in just a bad attitude, my mother was pretty sharp. She finally said, you know, I, I think you got a bad attitude. I have told her she does not have the gift of discernment. But um, I said, well, you know, at least I don't cuss. The lady you pray with on Thursday, her daughter, not only, but she cusses. Well, mothers love to think that their kids are just a little bit better than somebody else's. And so mother kind of got a little proud, thinking, I wonder whose daughter it is that cusses. And then one day I dropped something on my foot. And you know how it goes. My mother heard the bad word come out of my mouth. And I said, hey, I might, might cuss, but I don't smoke, man. I'm in the third grade. And the lady, you know, and I just kept trying to compare myself to somebody else. We have found everywhere we go 
that no matter where people are, whether it's in church, in a bar, or in prison, that people are always trying to find somebody to compare themselves to. We was in a prison in Australia. Three young men had raped a woman and cut her throat and left her in a vacant lot. Their prison system was a little different than ours, so when you're arrested, you go to prison. And then when you get, you know, you just go to prison. And if you're innocent, you get out. But you don't, they don't have the different buildings like we do. And they divide them up in the court into a violent or, you know, just white-collar type. And so these guys went straight to the prison. And that's the same day that my husband and I were supposed to be there to speak to the prisoners. When we got there, I thought maybe those guys would be there. But they were locked up in maximum security away from the other guys in a maximum security prison. And so when we sit down with about 50 prisoners in front of us, I got ready to share my testimony. One of them raised her hand and said, can I say something? What are you going to tell her? I knew he'd either murdered somebody, raped somebody, or something violent. I thought, you know, what am I going to say? No. Uh, I said, yeah, what? <clears throat> I was a little nervous, you know. But he says, I did kill somebody, but I killed a bad person. But if we could get our hands on those three guys, we would kill them for killing that little innocent woman. I said, bless your heart. Are you a church member? You act just, you know. But really, that's the way people are, is that we always try to figure out and say, well, I might do one thing, but honey, it's not bad as somebody else's. And I learned that hanging out in a lot of places that you might not think is real obvious, but some of it was even church, not just bars, that we learn to compare ourselves to others. You know, years later, when the young man witnessed to me to tell me about Jesus, he tried to encourage me not to compare myself to people, but to compare myself to Jesus. And when we do that, the Bible says we've all fallen short. There's not any that's righteous. And so it really kind of is exciting. When you compare yourself to the right person, we're all just a mess. And uh, that he can straighten it up. But I was just, uh, just a mess in my life, just like a lot of people. that I, I had a complex, I had that attitude. And those two things started multiplying real quick. And I didn't know how to handle it. When I was 13 years old, I was convinced if I could just get away from home, that's the first time I ran away. And I got out there, and you know what I found? You don't have to run real far to be a long way from home when you're looking for the wrong kind of stuff. And I didn't have to leave very far from my parents' house to be in a mess. That there was bars that catered to young kids, and they still do. There's those people always going to be there because they always think they can make money. There's always people looking for our young people. If we don't want to have a burden to go after them, they'll come after them. And uh, so the whole thing was that I went out there and within days got on drugs and, and just a lot of garbage at 13. I should have been playing with dolls, but the man that I met that I thought was finally giving me some attention, I'd never had attention from guys. You know, it was always just the fight or arm wrestles. The only way I ever got to hold hands in school with boys, <laughs> don't panic. And uh, it was just that I would uh, arm wrestle them or something. And so I was excited that I was getting attention. I was... Uh, the excitement of just being out there, things happening, it was, and people smiled. You know, you go into church and look pitiful. I didn't get a lot of attention. But when I went in a bar looking pitiful, somebody talked to me and they would give me attention. And I thought, man, this is great. I didn't realize they, it's like a hypnotizing me, trying to get me in. Then they're going to use me up and throw me away. But I didn't know that at the time. I was just getting some attention and excitement I'd never had before. And so the guy that gave me attention, I was noticing how he, he, I'd never danced, except in the mirror, you know, when you're combing your hair in the morning, the radio's going, I play like my hairbrush, <laughs> you know, I'd done that, but I'd never really been out in the world and done stuff, I'd not really drank, I'd not done drugs, but all of a sudden, I'm right in the middle of that world at 13. My parents had come to look for me. One time, I was standing behind a bar in the daytime, it was about 5 o'clock, and the sun was going down, so it was real bright outside, but dark inside. It was one of them kind of bars, not like Cheers on TV, where people think it's something wonderful. I'm talking one of them dives that you don't really want to walk past, afraid something might come out and get you. But um, my mother opened the door, and when she opened the door, I could see her, but she couldn't see in, and I just dropped down behind the bar. And my mother came up to the bartender, and he leaned over me. And my mama started crying and said, have you seen my daughter? And he told her, she told my name, and... And my described me and what I had on when, when I ran away. And he said, no, I hadn't seen her. And she handed him a coin and said, would you just let me know? Here's my phone number. If you see her, just let me know if she's alive or dead. I don't know, I don't know where she is. He said, if I ever hear from her, I'll do that. And when my mother left, we just laughed. But I'll tell you, it's one of them things that haunt you later on. But I'm so glad that the blood of Jesus can even take away the guilt of that kind of stuff and, and can heal those kind of things. That no matter where a young person goes, that God can even put a family back together. But what ended up happening is that I got strung out on heroin. 
my parents had me committed to mental hospital back then they didn't have the drug programs they have now they had me put in a mental hospital now the real reason that my mother had me put in the mental hospital is that she was hoping that there would be something wrong with me you know that then she'd have an excuse for my behavior and she would want to go to prayer meeting when she'd hear all the people praying for sick people that's all they ever pray for in churches she thought was just who's who in the hospital so my mother wanted me to be sick where she could raise her hand and say pray for my daughter she's sick and that's why she does these terrible things but the doctors would tell her there's nothing wrong with her she's mean so she'd fire that one and hire another one and we went through three different psychiatrists trying to get me out of trouble went through na went through aa went through all these different programs finally when i was 17 years old i got arrested and when i got arrested i was arrested for robbery and at that time when i got put in jail I, when I went to jail, I thought, as young as I am, they'll just call my parents like every other time. Every time I'd ever been arrested, they'd call my parents, and my daddy would lecture me, and my mother would cry, and I'd make big promises. You may even know people, you know, that promise, I'll never do it again. There's so many people we meet over and over that promise after what they did last night, they'll never do it again. And they really mean it, but they don't have any power. I found that there's no real power in your no or your yes without Jesus Christ. I didn't know him. I just knew about him. And I didn't have any power to change or to stop or to do anything. What ended up happening is that I stayed in jail for nine months waiting to go to trial. And while I was there, I even got exposed to some TB. Uh, one of the inmates died and had to go through that kind of medication and went through withdrawals. And my parents never missed one visiting day while I was there. My daddy never missed a visiting day the whole time I was locked up. A lot of times he would be turned away because I was being disciplined of some sort, but he was always there. When I went to uh, jail, I stayed there and I thought I'd get out quick, but they kept me and decided to try me as an adult. I stayed in jail nine months. When, then I went to court. When I stood in front of that judge, I thought he would send me home. But I remember that horrible feeling when he hit that hammer down and he said the penalty for robbery in the state of Texas, first offense, is two to ten years. And I had waived the right of a jury and accepted his charges because there were so many witnesses I wasn't going to try to fight it. Now I was originally I'm trying to convince my daddy with 11 eyewitnesses. I promise I didn't do it. And as much as he tried, he decided to defend me, even though all the things were stacked against me that he was going to stick by me. Finally, I told him the truth that I had done it. And while I was standing in front of that judge, he said that he sentenced me to eight years in prison. I remember getting that yucky feeling in my throat. I thought, Whoa, and then all of a sudden it hit me. Big deal. If I do the whole thing, I'll still be younger than you looking at that judge. And I just had such an ugly attitude. And you know what I found out about being locked up? It's like squeezing a water balloon. It doesn't really change anything. It just keeps us from hurting other people or doing stuff. It gets us in a place. But sin doesn't stop by just holding on to it. It pops out somewhere. And I got in that prison and there were things going on in there that I wouldn't even try to describe. But I walked in with an attitude saying, now look, there's certain things I won't do. I might do that. See, I'd never changed. From the very beginning, I always thought I'd draw a line and say, I'll do this, but I'll never do that. And I always would realize I could step over that line. And once I stepped over it, it didn't seem so bad. And I could look back and go, that is nothing. But I'd always find another line to draw, no matter where I was. At my very worst, at the very pits that I ended up getting to, I could still compare myself to other people. And at one point... My biggest comparison was it said, well, at least I'm not a hypocrite. I just do it. I don't do like a lot of them old church people. They go and claim something and then go and live like other people do out in the world. And so even at my worst, I'd always find somebody to compare myself to. And I'd draw lines, and I always thought that I had power to stop and not go any further. What ended up happening was I stayed seven years on that sentence. I should have stayed about four and a half. And I stayed in solitaire a lot of times because I would get in fights or get in trouble. When you get in trouble in prison, they don't call your parents, they lock you up. And when they would lock me up, they would put it, they called it segregation away from the other inmates. And I would fight and cuss. They wouldn't, matrons would not deal with me because of my size and I liked to fight. They called the guards and the male guards would come and fight me and I would fight them. I mean, we'd fight. I'd just hold on to them all the way down and cuss and spit and talk about their mama and be so filthy. They'd lock me at times, they left me totally nude, not that they were trying to be uh, weird, just because inmates had taken articles of clothing even and committed suicide. So until I was subdued or settled down, they would leave me in that place and I'd rattle them bars and act like I hated it, but I loved it. Because down there in that cell where nobody could see me, my dream never changed. 
I still wanted to be a lady. My dream was I wanted to feel valuable to somebody. I wanted somebody to like me. I wanted somebody to open the door for me, carry, just to treat me like I was somebody. It didn't mean everybody, just one, if I could find one person just to like me. So down there in that cell, I learned how to escape prison, not by picking locks or knocking down walls. I learned to fantasize and daydream. I used to think that was one of the strangest parts of my story, if people really grabbed a hold of what I'd learned to do, that I could look you in the face and be off building houses or having birthday parties for children that I didn't have, all those things. And I would sit in that place, and I would pretend that a doctor would operate on me for some emergency reason. Maybe I got shot or run over, and when he would cut me open inside of the big body, would be a little bitty pretty girl, and I'd be so sexy, men would fall at my feet. Now, men had fallen at my feet before, but it's because I decked them, not because I was so pretty. And I just daydreamed of being a lady, gracious and beautiful, feminine, children, my husband, home, just all those things. And then I would get out after 30 days or 60 days. And after a while, I'd kind of miss my family. So somebody walked by and said, good morning. I'd hit them for lying. Boom. And I'd be back down there. They'd lock me up again. I stayed a total of three years locked up in that solitaire cell, daydreaming my life away. You know why I think it's a strange part of my story is that I found that even sitting in some of our churches, in the bars, all over the place, there's people that can look you in the face and they're fantasizing that they wish they could be somebody. And only Jesus really makes us somebody. But I found out a whole lot of people daydream, try to live in a world that's not real because the one they really live in hurts so bad that we don't even want to face it. And I saw that a whole lot. Well, what ended up happening was I finally got out of prison. Seven years had come and gone. My daddy never missed one day that he was allowed to come. Every other Saturday morning, my daddy was the first one past the guards and coming to the visiting room. They would yell down the hall that my visit was here, and then he would be informed if I could come see him or not. And a lot of times, he drove that 75 miles and then was turned away and not allowed to see me. He'd been encouraged before to even drive away and pretend that they had had a funeral and just act like I had died because they had given me psychological tests, personality evaluation, and on my permanent record, they put that I was incorrigible and a degenerate. I didn't even know what either one of those words meant because I was a dropout. I mean, that's on my record, that there's no hope for me. And I hate statistics, except that I love to tell people that statistic, not that I'm proud of it, but sometimes some people can hear statistics and it scare them, facing a young person's life being messed up, and they can think, there's no hope for this person. I want you to know there's hope. When there's breath, there's hope. Jesus can change anybody. Statistics say I can't change. The blood of Jesus is more powerful than any statistic in the universe. But what happened was that I stayed down there, I finally getting out of prison, and when I got out, my daddy was there to pick me up. When he picked me up, he got me my hamburger, the kind dripped down your elbow you've been just dying for, and french fries and a chocolate malt. <laughs> Hadn't been in an automobile in seven years. That food and that truck, that road pretty soon is hitting me right in the face, and I'm on the side of the road. My daddy's singing to me. Got his handkerchief out, got ice out of his drink putting it on the back of my neck, telling me how much he loved me. When I got home, piled on my bed, was seven years of Christmas presents, Valentine's, Easter baskets. And my mama made the other kids come and act like they liked me. <laughs> you know, it's like, you come and you like it. And then they came and they had a smorgasbord. We had a big time. But within just a few hours, my younger sister said, come on, let's go for a ride. She had drugs for me. I got back on drugs within hours of my release. Before long, I was back doing worse than before, living in two lifestyles, wickeder than ever, because I thought that I was gonna just be a confused person the rest of my life and there wasn't no way out. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew I just wanted to be valuable to somebody and all you can do is just play the game everybody plays and I didn't think there was hope. I'd met every kind of person there was. Matter of fact, the prison's full of every religion in the world. Every state has a big majority of people that's supposed to be every denomination. Texas is Baptist, and uh, New York, it's Lutheran. It depends on where you are. In Utah, it's Mormons. Wherever you are, somebody has the majority of religion in the prison. So obviously, prison religion don't do a thing for you. But what happened to me, I always thought it was a dumb question. When they fingerprint you and they ask your name, they say, what religion are you? I thought, well, obviously it don't work, but whatever, you know. But that's what happened. 
When I got out and got messed up again, my parents were sick. They knew what was going on, but they didn't want to know too much. And my mother was desperate. All those years, she'd never told one person at church that I was in trouble. Even her own sister, my aunts didn't know where I was, she thought. They all knew it, they just didn't tell her they knew it. And they kept it to herself, and she kept it to herself, and finally one day she got honest and said, I need prayer for my daughter. She's not sick, she's lost. She's not in another town working, she's been in prison. And I'm asking you, please, to pray for her salvation. And, and she got honest, said, God, I don't want you to keep her safe anymore. If it takes her losing an arm or a leg or going back to prison, whatever it takes, I don't want to go to heaven without my baby. I said, you told God that? She said, yeah. I don't want to go without my whole family. Man, that's love, isn't it? My mama said she lifted us up to Jesus. Just two weeks after that, a young man got up out of an old church one day. He said, you know what? God wants us to be witnesses. I want to be a witness. I want God to use me. And he decided I was going to be his first target. One of our famous evangelists tried to encourage him to leave me alone. I was a troublemaker. God caused him to mess up. That young man wept, said, if Jesus can save me, he can save her. And he told me Jesus loved me. I'd heard that story before. He told me that no matter what I'd done, that Jesus could take away all my sin and make me brand new. He'd call the bar late at night. I'd say, hello, when I was still moving around pretty good. He'd say, I just called to tell you Jesus loved you, and I'd hang up on him. He'd wait till almost closing time, call and say, hey, I just called to remind you. I'm praying for you, and Jesus loves you. Or he might call me in the afternoon and say, you don't believe what I found. Man, that's about this woman. She'd been married five times, shaking up right now. I thought, who? And she said, oh, it's about a woman at the well, Jesus. I thought, oh, shut up. I'd hang up on him again. <laughs> oh, he'd sneak up on me. You know, he'd sucker me in. I'd listen a little while, and then he'd, you know, and he'd get me. He witnessed to me from Sunday afternoon to Thursday. On Wednesday night, he had people praying for me at church. Thursday night, he called me. March 31st, he said, I want you to come outside. I'm never coming back in that bar. But I'd like for you to come outside. I want to tell you bye. I'm not going to bug you no more. Kind of shook me up. I thought, is he giving up on me or something? So I went outside and waited for him. When he got there, I sat down in the car. He started crying. He said, you think I'm not even a man? Because what you and them girls are trying to get me to do. He said, I know it feels good for a moment. But I'm more concerned about your eternity than a moment's pleasure. I'd met men and women that would ruin anybody, even a baby's life, if it meant a moment's pleasure. I think I'd have ruined anybody. It didn't matter to me. If I wanted something, I didn't care who I hurt to get it. And he's more concerned about my eternity of time. I can't understand a person I can't touch. I didn't understand. He said, you don't even know. But I made a commitment a long time ago. Now, if you remember, he'd been telling me that Jesus loved me and that every hair on my head was numbered. He'd tell me that he was acquainted with all my ways. And that even if I hid in the darkness and thought nobody saw me, that God saw me and knew everything about me, and at my very worst, he still loved me. He even explained to me, like going to court, saying, you remember what it felt like when the judge said the wages or the penalty in this state is this? He said, one day we'll stand before the judge, not just a judge, and the wages of sin is death. But Jesus loves you so much. Can you imagine Stand in a courtroom and a man that's innocent say, wait a minute, I love her so much, I'll go in her place. Every prisoner daydreams stuff like that. But he said, oh, that doesn't even skim the surface of what Jesus did on the cross. But he loves you. He'd tell me these stories. So here we are in front of the bar. And he says, I can't see you no more. Because I made a commitment. I wasn't going to hang around with tramps. When he called me a tramp, I wanted to cut his throat. I thought all week you've been telling me I was precious to God and that I was valuable. And now I'm one worried. What do you call me? Garbage. What do you do with garbage? You put it on the ground in the corner and garbage him and take it away. And he said, you don't even understand. Jesus could make you a lady. And when he said the word lady, it was like something just exploded inside. And I thought it was like a struggle. If I give myself to him, I'm a junkie. You know, I mean, you don't have to pray about it. Can I be a Christian junkie? I didn't have to pray. Can I shack up with just one person? I'll let one go. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I couldn't get out of it. And I said, man, if he's real, all I've ever wanted was to be a lady. And if he's real, I want it. And he said, well, if you mean business, you'll pray outside. And I said, I mean business. So I got out of the car. He said, kneel down. I thought, that ain't fair. Everybody else gets to bow their head. Nobody's looking. But I knelt down, and he took my hands. And he said, you see, it's really like a marriage. 
It's not just believing. Because if just believing in Jesus would save you, you'd have been saved when you first heard the truth. But it's a commitment of your life to him. Saying by faith, I give you me. It's not just a one-way street. He gets all of you, you get all of him. I said, I'm ready. He said, okay, I'm going to lead you in a prayer, kind of like a wedding. And he said, Jesus, do you want her? I didn't hear nothing. But he said, he said, I do. And he said, Iris, do you want Jesus? And I said, I do. He said, Jesus, you know what it takes to get her. She ain't worth Whoa. <laughs> he bankrupt heaven for you. Now, Iris, is there anything you're not willing to give him? I said, I'm ready. I remember saying that night, Lord, I'd rather sleep in a ditch. If you really take away my yesterdays and make me forgiven, I'd rather sleep in a ditch. If you can really forgive me, I want that. And we took hands, and there was a little girl dancing in the window, and they wasn't playing just as I am. We could feel the music on our knees. It was so loud. And he said, pray with me. And it's a sinner's prayer. He says, but it's like a preacher getting a couple to repeat vows of saying, I give you me. He said, that's what the sinner's prayer is. And he took my hand and led me in that prayer. And that night I closed three topless nightclubs. I never went back where I was shacked up to this day. 22 years, I don't know where my furniture, my clothes, my jewelry went. My life was different. I doubted my salvation about 300 times that weekend. I'd call that young man, I said, I don't feel different. He said, you normally call people 3 o'clock in the morning doubting your salvation? I said, no. He said, see, you're different. Hang up on it. <laughs> but Sunday morning, I went to church. And I preached, preached on forgiveness. said, God removes your sin as far as east is from the west. I said, oh, sir, I ain't educated, but I know you can't get there from here. They don't really want you to talk to him. So he'd move over this way and try to avoid me and move over this way. Then he said, let's go to Nicodemus in the New Testament. And he had his hands up. He said, it says what's born of the flesh is flesh, but what's born of the spirit is spirit. And it was like God pulled the curtain back in my heart. And I realized my testimony that I have shared around the world is that on March 31st, out in front of an old bar, I knelt down a tramp, a loser, a zero. But I stood up a lady, clean, pure, forgiven, innocent, blameless, cherished, brand new. A lot of people know about Jesus. And a young man that explained it to me was like a marriage, that it's receiving him, that, that the Holy Spirit drawing you is just like a being flirted with, of saying, isn't he lovely, and don't you want him? And, and that when the Holy Spirit draws you and deals with you and bugs your heart, gives you whatever the different ways people explain how the sensation may come, the burden, the guilt, the, the frustration of thinking that maybe there really is a God and he could really do something with me, that that revelation only can come from the Holy Spirit dealing with you and calling you and so I believe that when people hear stories like like what God did in my life and what God's done in in Blue's life that that they could have a hunger that the Holy Spirit could place there of saying that can be you that you can really be forgiven and all of your yesterdays can really be gone and and I think that's one of the greatest parts of of salvation is knowing your yesterdays are gone and the blood of Jesus takes away your yesterdays and then he gives you a peace for the day, just a peaceful day, that I'm not afraid of yesterday or tomorrow because I can have peace for today. And then I do have hope for tomorrow, that there was times I had to daydream because I didn't see no future. And there's a lot of people that don't seem like there's a hope for the future. And so I, I wanted to just close by sharing that if there is somebody that's even just here or hearing the tape, that has whatever it is that God could be showing you right now, that just that hunger of saying, I want to be forgiven. I want to be brand new. I want to be different. I want to be a real woman or a real man. I want God to change me, that he really can do that. And if, if that's happening to you, then your response is just simply saying, I believe it. I accept it. I don't understand it, but I accept it. And the way a person explained it to me was a marriage, of saying, I do to Jesus. And, you know, it, I love that illustration because, there's a lot of people even can say they love Jesus. Little kids hear stories about him and they love him. But my daddy realized it's like having a crush on somebody that don't make you married. You can move in and it don't make you married or have children. What makes you married is when you believe it in your heart. And then one day in front of somebody say, I do. 
And that's what the Bible says, that we believe it in our heart first and then with our mouth confessions made unto salvation. So I'd like to lead you in a prayer just saying I do to Jesus. If you know for sure that God's dealing with you, that you're lost, that if you're, you're just not complete, you're undone, you need a Savior, and He can change you and make you brand new. He can take away your yesterdays, give you a tomorrow, peace for today. If you really are knowing that in your heart and your spirit that, that you need Him, then I want to lead you to prayer just saying I do to Jesus because I promised 2,000 years ago on a cross He said I do to you and He gave all of His self to you and it's your move. And so if you'll just pray with me, I'm going to just lead you in a prayer. And it's a prayer of salvation. You can say your own words. It's not really what I say. But I just want to talk to the Father. And, and if, if you want to meet Jesus, you use your own words or you can repeat mine just as an example. But let's just pray. If you'd like to ask Jesus in your life, Give him all of you. Just do something like this. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess I'm a sinner, that I deserve death and hell, but you love me so much that you sent Jesus, your only son, to die in my place. I don't understand that, but I accept it. I, right this moment, accept Jesus Christ as my payment in full for all that I've done, all that I am or ever will be. That just simply being born, I deserve death. But Jesus paid it for me. I accept that. Now, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I give you my past, my present, my future, my body, my dreams. I just give you me, and I accept you. Holy Spirit, I ask you to just fill me up and empower me. Give me a hunger for God's Word and a desire to talk about Jesus. Make me a godly woman or a man. Just make me different. Clean me up. Cover me in the blood of Jesus and take away all my sin and make me brand new. And I believe by just asking in this prayer that Jesus saved me, that at this very moment my name's being written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I believe it. I accept it. I don't understand it. But I want salvation. I want forgiveness. I want deliverance. I want a new life. And I accept it in Jesus' name that I'm clean, I'm forgiven, I'm brand new. Amen.
Folks, if you listen to that song and you said, I surrender all, and you've prayed that prayer with Iris, you know, she said a lot in her message about not understanding. She said that several times. Even if you don't understand, some, you know, uh, we, we kind of speak Christianese as Christians sometimes, and, and uh, we, we talk about Scripture because it's so important to us. That, that's how we learn uh, as men and women of God as we read the Scripture. And we know these stories, most of them in the Scripture. But sometimes when you're just new to it, you don't understand that. But if you know that you know that you just surrendered all, then this next song is going to help you a lot. It's called, All is Well with My Soul. And that's what happens when you surrender all to the Lord. And that's what happened with Sister Iris. That's what happened with Gary Rayburn and Daryl Spicer. When we surrendered all, all became well with our soul. And that's all you have to do to get that. That's right, drivers. If you prayed that prayer with Iris Blue, then we want to hear from you. You can call me, Lonesome Road Ministries, at 618-383-2107. We want to help you out there on that old Lonesome Road get through each and every day. So give us a call. Let us help you as you listen to another great song by The McKay Project. It is well with my soul. We hope that you prayed that prayer and it is well with your soul. And once it gets well with your soul, you never want to go back to the way you used to be. Here's another song by the McKay Project called Never Again. Where I 
project with never again and drivers my friend gary rayburn has a song and testimony called at the foot of the tree that dennis mckay uh, recorded for gary and did an awesome job and just like gary rayburn if you said that prayer with iris then you've got a testimony so let's go to the foot of the tree Without hope, 18 wheels of lonesome at the end of the road. In my hand was a track the preacher had read, his words still echoing in the back of my head. I felt so ashamed when I thought of my past. Then I called his name This chance would it be my last Then I saw Jesus Hanging on that tree I lifted up my heart From down on my knees Today I met Jesus At the foot of the cross Brokenhearted and lonesome So long I've been lost I left a lifetime of misery At the foot of the tree Those 18 wheels are rolling that old lonesome road And I shared the good news Wherever I go 
guess there's been a change I'm not the man I used to be And I tell everybody What's happened to me How I felt so ashamed When I thought of my past But I called his name This chance, could it be my last? Then I saw Jesus hanging on that tree And I lifted up my heart from down on my knees Today I met Jesus at the foot of the cross Broken hearted and lonesome So long I've been lost I left a lifetime of misery At the foot of the tree Then I saw Jesus Hanging on that tree I lifted up my heart From down on my knees Today I met Jesus At the foot of the cross Broken-hearted and lonesome So long I'd been lost I left a lifetime of misery At the foot of the tree Drivers, this is Chaplain Gary Rayburn, Lonesome Road Ministries, Church on the Road Radio, and we want to hear from you. Give us a shout. Our phone number is 618-383-2107 or log on to lonesomeroad.org. And if you can't give us a call, then just blow your air horn as you're driving by. Keep it rolling. 